as we start using these AI technologies, whether they're coming in through different vendors, we're starting to pull our own AI engines. We're intrigued by that and we're excited about the ability to do our jobs better. Stop just a little bit and think about what you're trying to do and especially the data that you're bringing into this and the impact that this could have down the road. As an IT leader responsible for service reliability, you know how critical it is to maintain uptime and responsiveness. Protecting and growing your business's reputation depends on it. IT leaders like us know that when we find what works, everything just flows. In this podcast, we'll explore the possibilities of service reliability today and tomorrow and hear from those driving innovation and consistent performance. I'm Sean McDermott, founder and CEO of Windward Consulting Group. Welcome to Find Flow. Before the episode gets started, we've created a gift for you. It's a short guide called Nine Ways to Accelerate Your Service Reliability Strategy. As a leader in IT, doing everything you can to contribute to business performance, this is the perfect start to optimize your service availability. You can get it now over at windward.com. That's W-I-N-D-W-A-R-D.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Fine Flow Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McDermott, and today we have Scott Saraboff with us. Scott is a, yeah, well, he has his own podcast, The Privacy of Me, and he's currently the general manager of Deeping Source, a University of Texas graduate, so go Longhorns, and an advocate of AI and privacy. So, Scott, welcome to the podcast, and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, Sean, thank you. Thanks for having me on the Find Flow podcast. I've been involved in high-tech, bleeding-edge, leading-edge stuff for, goodness gracious, 35 years-ish. I have kind of done everything from building back-end telecom networks all the way through hyper-converged infrastructure and having been involved in the security industry on the surveillance side for the better part of the last two decades and also involved in AI, I've developed quite the strong set of beliefs about what AI is going to allow us to do both good and bad and what we should be looking for. Excellent. Well, that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So just to kind of get the context going, because I know you kind of look at AI across the spectrum, which is great. And I know that as general manager of Deeping Source, you guys do a lot of video surveillance and anonymization of data using AI. That's pretty cool stuff. If you're interested in that kind of stuff, go check out your website because I was fascinated by that as I was going through it. But for our podcast, really what we focus on is is service reliability You know, in the IT world. AI is becoming more and more of the conversation, if not actually being actively deployed in service reliability organizations, whether it be in service desk applications where vendors are embedding AI as part of feature sets into their products operations management, where we're looking at things like AI ops, which is really the kind of consumption of massive amounts of data coming into the organization, being able to relate that data to other sources for correlation of outages and predictability of service availability of critical infrastructure and critical applications, as well as security, right? And SecOps is a major part of service reliability and and security just collects enormous amounts of data and to be able to sort through that data and understand you know, what may be happening, where your vulnerabilities might be. So we're seeing AI really come into our customers' organizations in a big way. 
a lot of it is vendors embedding AI into current product sets as part of, you know, an automation routine. But we're also seeing some customers, I actually just had a meeting with a customer last week, you know, had lunch with them, and they're actually building their own AI engines and using that those engines to consume, you know, push data through and look for new things in new use cases and building kind of AI robots that they can then embed into their infrastructure. So it's all good, right? There's, I mean, it's not all good. There's a lot of good, right? So let's, let's kind of kick this thing off and talk about the good of AI, right? Because... Because then we're going to make a right-hand turn later. So let's talk about the good of AI. So pump us up a little bit about the good of AI. Sure. Let's, let's be clear. AI is good, and it's bad, and it's right in the middle. AI is a tool that reflects how it was built. And so if you get a system that is built to do good things, then you have a good AI. 20 years ago... 15 years ago, when people were putting networks together, what did they use to tell if a camera was offline or something else failed in a really large network? And the normal answer was, well, we just don't see video or we can't see that building or, you know, we can't see the gas station in Arkansas. That's part of the network. You started to come out with these products First, there were heartbeat detections for some sort of indication from a device that it was alive. That's the term. Yeah, I mean, if you go back in our world, right, we had this thing called SNMP polling, right, back in the day where you just send out a poll and if the thing responds, like, well, it's alive, you know, that's the basis of where I started my career 30 years ago. And now your job, if you took that same information, what you want to do is build an intelligent system that not only can monitor everything, but can use predictive analytics through AI to determine what might fail next or where there's a bottleneck or where, you know, you have some sort of congestion issue or some sort of, you know, denial of service attack or whatever. You want to combine historical data with current data and look into the future. And AI is good at that because it can see all those patterns and all that history instantaneously. All, all of us, myself, you, everyone we wanted to sit in a room with, we couldn't do it nearly as fast or as well. So from that perspective, the use of AI is brilliant because now I can look forward. Hey, that this DOS attack looks just like this one from two months ago. I wonder if they're the same. That's what AI is good at. Yeah, and that's exactly where we're seeing the applications in, in our space, right? You just nailed it. It's denial of service attacks, being able to go through historical amounts of data, looking for patterns of, you know, something that's happening today, has it happened before, mm-hmm. and then making recommendations. And I think we're ultimately going to see AI. Um, I don't think we're, I don't think this, I know this, right? We're going to see AI become more and more mature where it's going to start doing auto remediation, right? Auto yes. configurations and things yes. like that. And, you know, one of the use cases that my my client last week said that they they started going through, their change logs, right? And the change requests for IT changes. And there's, you know, some of these companies do a thousand changes a week. And they're using these AI engines to start looking downstream at some of the changes and the effects that it may have and actually change the priority and and take changes that would have normally gone through and, and change them into a critical status that they actually don't go through anymore until they get further review. So those are good good use cases. They are. They are. To your point, you just said, 
how many pieces of software have we interacted with where an innocent change created a butterfly effect downstream that did something terrifying? AI is capable of seeing the entire code structure and saying, whoop, stop. We can't do that because it'll do this. And if it's a million lines into the code, you'd never find it until there was a problem. Yeah. And, that, and that's really the promise, right? And I think that that's where a lot of people are excited about it. And I'm excited about it. I really am. I'm excited about how AI, you know, and we can, we can have all kinds of, we were actually prior to this podcast, you and I talking, and we could have all kinds of discussions about the other ramifications of AI and, and mm-hmm. replacing humans and things like that. But, you know, I've been in the automation space for 20 years and that's always been the argument. It's like, well, we're going to replace jobs and it just hasn't happened. I mean, the jobs have changed, right? The skill sets have changed. We'll see how that plays out because we really don't know the potential, like the true potential of AI going forward. Agreed. We don't. And I said, I think what we're seeing happening right now is AI is supplementing and this doesn't, you know, it's not for every type of work, obviously. AI is doing the stuff that we're inherently bad at. We are inherently bad at staring at a screen for more than approximately seven seconds. We start to, you know, if you're looking at multiple screens, it's, it's even harder. We can't see everything all at once. So AI is good at these sorts of things. So you supplement with it. And we don't know if that supplementation is going to grow to become, we don't need a person in the job yet or not. It's one potential outcome. It's not necessarily the potential outcome. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting. It's like I was, you know, as a, as a tech guy living in central Florida, where there's not a lot of tech people, I get a lot of questions about, you know, especially chat GDP and things like that. I mean, you live in Austin, so you're surrounded by tech people, but not so much in central Florida. And, uh, you know, the question I keep getting asked is, is ChatGB going to replace, you know, jobs? And I'm like, I said, you know what, here's how I look at it. You know, if you're going to sit down and write a piece of piece of copy, it is really hard to start from a blank piece of paper. It's just really hard. I mean, writers will sit there, seasoned writers, novelists will sit there for days staring at a blank, you know, blank screen before they start typing. So if you have the ability to use something like chat, chat TDP to get you going and get something written that you can then infuse your personal experience and your opinions and really your perspective into it, then I think it's a good thing. You know, do I think that companies are going to, some people are going to go out and just say, hey, I wrote a blog post from ChatTP and posted it up. Sure. I think that's going to happen all the time. But it doesn't necessarily make it good, right? And it doesn't make it contextual, contextual to what you're trying to say. So it's, a lot of these tools are just how you use them. Sure. And, you know, living in Central Florida, living in Austin, you're, you're right and wrong. There's plenty of non-techies here too. You know, tell me who really understands outside of the engineers at ChatGPT, and they don't know either, how this really works. So when someone says, is ChatGPT5 going to take all the newspaper articles and turn them into computerized articles, right? What people don't understand is somewhere at the very beginning, ChatGPT was taught just like an infant. And it was taught by people. And every single one of us that uses ChatGPT teaches it something about the use of language. So they have to be taught. They have models for this sort of thing. Right now, I don't see AI replicating art. And when I say art, I, before the podcast started, I was bragging on my little recording studio here. But can, can AI suffer heartbreak? Can it write a love song? Can it imbue 
writing or painting or music with emotion. Right now, not that I've seen, do I see a potential segregation in the future where we have, for example, AI-driven music and human-driven music? Sure, absolutely. If I ran a company that put Muzak in elevators, I, if I could do it over AI, honestly, why wouldn't I? It's non-vocals. It's designed to be boring and background anyway. But if you want to go, if you're going to write a musical or an opera or a stirring piece of classical music, I would still argue that without that oomph of human emotion, it's not the same thing. So realistically now, I think we're going to see that sort of split over time. Hey, here's a whole, and in fact, here's a good example. If you go on, you know, Adobe stock or Shutterstock or anything of the sort, they're starting to have sections that point out AI created. This was, or you can create your own and then everything else by artists. So I see that as a split coming and some of those jobs, copywriting, proofreading, some of them may suffer from the, the advent of AI, but I don't think we're going to see the artistic suffrage yet, but you just, because we don't have generative AI in the truest sense. They're not alive. And until they have emotions and whatnot, again, can it write a love song? Yeah. No, I, I think that's really a poignant point right there because it really does come down to a human, you know, why do we listen to music, right? For that human connection, right? There's something in lyrics. There's something that moves you. You hear a song. Why does music endure for so long, right? It's because it's connected to a memory of the past, <laughs> right? If the AI doesn't have a memory of the past, then they're just writing words. And, and look, you know, they may connect on certain things. And I could definitely see like EDM music and things like that becoming a little bit more AI. And I think your example is perfect. The world is yet to be seen. And I think we're just at the beginning of this. To summarize this part of the conversation is we're seeing a lot of value in AI and potential in AI in the IT space. Now, let's shift because this is where I think the conversation gets super interesting. That is the unintended consequences of AI. And I think that we can go and we can look at all kinds of different things about surveillance and things like that. But coming back to my world, right, the world of IT, you brought up an example in one of your articles, which I think encapsulates the entire conversation. And that is the White Castle lawsuit going on right now, where they decided to collect fingerprints and are now being sued <laughs> by employees for collecting all this data. And I think this encapsulates exactly what like, we need to be talking about. And that is, we try to do the things with the best of intentions, and it just doesn't work out that way, right? I could see a bunch of engineers, IT folks sitting in a conference room going, hey, you know what would be great is instead of people having to like put their pin codes in or whatever they're doing right now, if they could just come up and put their fingerprint on and scan that fingerprint and clock in to think that would be so much easier. We could track it. it would, it's easier for them. They don't have to carry a badge. You don't have to swipe anything. They don't have to remember pin codes. It's all, you know, identity, you know, specific identity. And for on our side, it just goes right into our computer system and we can process everything and, and actually process reports and then process payroll records and things like that. This is awesome. And not so much, right? Here we are 10 years later, you know, they're facing up to what, $17 billion in fines. 
this is a perfect example of an organization probably sitting in the center going, we are doing the right thing. We are doing great. And this is such a great idea. And 10 years later, it's a nightmare, which I don't even know if White Castle could survive a $17 billion lawsuit. It, you know, it could be seen if it actually turns out that bad. But still, I mean, would you want to be the CEO of White Castle right now with that thing hanging over you? But it was the best intentions. And we do this all the time. Like we do this thing that scares me, right, is I'm an IT organization. I deployed these service desks. I got 50,000 employees in our company. And my job is to make sure our employees run efficiently. You know, they have the tools that they need and access to the data that they need to make decisions. All good stuff, right? All pure intentions. And, you know, employees have issues with IT. They need a laptop. They need applications. They need access. They forgot their password, all kinds of stuff like that. And I decide one day, it's like, you know, you know what, you know, if we could integrate into our HR system and understand and bring in some of our HR data around that employee, like where they're at, where they live, where they, you know, then, you know, we could, we could probably provide better service. Well, there's a lot of other more information inside that HR database than, than just stuff like that. And are you now introducing, again, with the best intentions, bring data into your environment that could turn around and just be an absolute nightmare for you. So let's let's clarify on White Castle, not that anything you said was wrong. Fortunately, I, the reason the judgment is so high is because they've chosen to implement on a per-occasion penalty. So that means if I used my fingerprint 75 times legally, they broke the law 75 times, which no one thinks that's going to survive. Why did White Castle get sued? What's the real reason behind this? And, and the answer is it's the protection of personal and private information, right? PI or PPI, PII, however you want to put it. Now, I've been involved in software, hardware products for a long time. And most of us would agree that the first iteration of a software product built by engineers who've never interfaced with a human can only be used by other engineers. They're terrible. They might be working perfectly, but they have no GUI. They're not something that you would put in front of my wife or my kids and be like, here, use this. They wouldn't know what to do. There's a bit of that going on here, right? The idea that the engineering people went, hey, this is going to be great. Foinked, and it goes out there. Nobody checked with legal or HR or et cetera, et cetera. And it works fine until something like this rolls along. Now, there's an interesting concept inside of all of this that I like to refer to and all credit to Danny Liker, who came up with this, the idea of an identity layer. In your company, you've got, so let's say I work for your company. I have an HR file. I have a work product file, blah, blah, blah. How many of those do we have to combine together to find me, to learn something about me? Set biometrics aside, because biometrics are unique to us. But if I get enough individual bits of information about Sean or about Scott, I can probably find out a lot more because I can start tying other pieces of information together, right? So I have my, I work for Sean identity. That's one layer. And inside of your system, I have an HR layer and maybe I've got special access to certain things. That's another layer. All of these little bits of us that we've put out into the digital world they're all just layers of identification, identity. And you can almost divide them in half. We have physical, we have digital. These digital layers 
that can identify us is where I think we all have to be saying, hold on, because if you take those and cherry pick, we can make you appear to be virtually anything we want. What if you didn't make a car payment correctly or declared bankruptcy or whatever? Absent all the other information, maybe I can paint a bad credit picture about you. You follow? I, mean, I know you follow what I'm saying, but the idea here is with all this information out there, what stops anyone from getting an incorrect picture of who we are? Yeah, it's interesting. There's unintentionally doing things like that, right? And then there's intentional. I just read an article in the New York Times last weekend about a guy whose business was literally just targeted and he was ruined, you know, and they used all kinds of information against him and they just twisted it, right? That's an intended damage to somebody that's awful. But there's also a lot of, I think in the IT world, right? We live in this world where we're trying to do the right thing, you know? I mean, we talked about this before we got on the show and like Tristan Harris, he's he's prominently figured in the uh, the Social Dilemma documentary and he's all about... Center for Humane Technology, like how do we use this? And and really that that social dilemma, it was really driven around how, you know, the, the origins of Facebook, right? It's about, it was about connectivity, right? How do we connect people? How do we build more human connections? And I think that was, that was the intended result or the intention of it. It's changed massively since then, right? <laughs> and, uh-huh. and yeah, and and in the social dilemma, if anyone hasn't seen it, please go see this. It's on Netflix, and we'll put it in the show notes for you. There's so much discussion in there from people with from these social media networks going. We thought we were doing the right thing. We thought we were doing something for good, and it's just you just sit there and you're like, oh my gosh, there's just so much of that because I do believe that you know people are inherently good, right? And they're in trying inherently trying to do something good for humanity and have this mission of, of, of doing something good. And it can just be turned wildly bad. And I see this in our world, in our IT world, with this potential of interlinking all these internal databases together with the intention of doing something good with that information and having it go horribly wrong. Thank you for bringing up the Facebook thing, because set the money aside. That's an area of morality that we don't even need to get into. But does anyone really believe that Mark Zuckerberg sat in his dorm room in 2000 and let's say four and said, hmm, I want to build a social network that ultimately influences presidential elections? No, he didn't. He built, first it was for rating people and whatever, but his goal I think was, it was for social. rating women, actually. <laughs> it was, it, well, I was trying to, okay, forget. Yeah, it was, it was, was, it was for rating women. So maybe it but wasn't ult- built with the best intentions. Well, he was a young kid in college. We'll give him a, a mulligan for hormones. But either way, he, he was ultimately, it turned into, hey, let's build this thing to help facilitate social interaction. And for some amount of time, it was kind of good at that, right? Whether it's cat videos or my personal favorite, it's a place that I put up pictures so people I don't really like can see how we're doing. But look where it is today. And I think that we are making a massive mistake in not taking the lessons taught by Facebook at all and applying them to AI. Because we can look back at Facebook and go, okay, we don't want that again. And make sure we put those those roadblocks, those speed bumps in the development of AI. And as far as I know, no one's bothered to do that yet. Could we put blockchain authentication into AI product or non-AI product so it's easy to tell if an image is a deep fake. What are, why are we not doing some of the basic things? We are a year away from a presidential election. 
And anyone who doesn't think we're going to see deep fake videos and bad stories, et cetera, et cetera, some of which are used, or I should say created by AI, others are AI driven to hit the right target populations, you are nuts. We're going to see that. Why aren't we defending against that? And that's, that's something I think we're making a terrible mistake on. The other thing that I want to throw out for you, turn it back over to you, is this. You talk about a good example and a bad example. In LA, what the Sheriff's Department or LAPD, they have a predictive system that basically tells them when there is a gathering on a street corner. Why did they do that? Because they found that the more people on a street corner playing dice or playing card games, the more likely a fight to break out. And if it's in a gang area, a fight will usually wind up with a firearm. So what do they do? They roll a police car and tell everyone to go home. That's it. No one gets arrested. They also use a facial recognition system for gang identification. And once you're in it, they have no way to delete you. If it catches you accidentally because you're wearing a red shirt in whatever you know gang wears red, you are now and forever in the gang database as a gang member with no possibility of deletion. There's a good example of plus and minus. Yeah. And the reality is of that is, is it's all driven by technology, right? So we as technologists have to take some responsibility for that. And kind of going back into our example, back into our world, my request coming out of this podcast, and honestly, I think this could be one of the most valuable podcasts we've done, I don't know, 150 episodes over the last two years. This could be the most important one that we've done. It's because what I'm trying to say is, as we start using these AI technologies, whether they're coming in through different vendors, we're starting to pull our own AI engines, we're intrigued by that, and we're excited about the ability to do our jobs better, stop just a little bit and think about what you're trying to do, and especially the data that you're bringing into this, and the impact that this could have down the road, because it not only can turn into just a major privacy issue and things like that, and just have the wrong result that you want, it could actually be massively harmful to your company. And executives and CEOs and things like that, they don't know this. They're not technologists. They don't understand. And they don't even understand how to associate the risk. I'm sure this CEO of White Castle 10 years ago thought that this was a great idea because of the way it was presented to him. You know, and now he's sitting on a massive lawsuit probably wondering, how did I get here? <laughs> like, how did we get here? And we as technologists have to take that responsibility. Somebody told him, we're losing X man hours per day with people fumbling for cards or leaving them home or whatever. But if we just get their fingerprint, insert solution. Oh, great. You don't see it coming. Now, in this case, you know, the CEOs of today need to be listening to well-informed CTOs and chief human resources and legal because the tea leaves are out to some degree. So if you have a business in Illinois or California, or oddly enough, Texas to a lesser degree, there are regulations coming down the pipe that are really restrictive on personal data. And it's starting to cover biometrics and it's starting to cover AI, et cetera. So you got to stay alert and aware of that. And now this is more of a question for you, but as you're looking at the development of technology, what are, the, what are the questions we need to be asking as we're building this? In other words, okay, here's the benefit of the fingerprint. What are the downsides? Who's in the room talking about the downsides? Yeah, no, I think, I think you nailed it. And that is, we need to, some of these technology decisions, and the key is some, not necessarily all. So you have to be keen on which ones you need to spend time on, needs to be brought into a larger group of people 
for debate and brought into, like you said, the human resources organization, the legal organization, the financial organization, because there needs to be constructive debate to answer that second part of the question, in my mind, because most people are optimists, right? And the fact that like, hey, I got this great idea. I can do this and this and this and this and this and this. And I've started a number of businesses and I get a fair number of people coming to me saying, hey, Sean, you know, do you have any advice? And, and, and I tell people all the time, this is my biggest advice. First thing is, is, you know, make sure your spouse, your partner, whatever is on board, because if they're not, then your life's going to be miserable. Second thing is when you get done your business plan and you're all excited about the amazing thing you're going to create, and you're going to take into the world, go get a six pack of beer, perhaps a 12 pack of beer, a couple of bottles of wine, go lock yourself into a room and think about every possible bad thing that can happen. Because I will guarantee that many of those things will actually happen. And if you can do that, then you can come out of that room with a much broader perspective and understand, okay, these are the risks going forward. I've dug deep into these risks. It's not like, oh, the risk is this. It's like, the risk is this. Why? 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 Dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And when you start getting deeper, you start getting to like really interesting aspects of what you're trying to do. And then you can plan around that. You can basically say, oh, if this happens, then this is what we can do. And I think what you just said is so important. Like bring some of these initiatives into the light, into a broader organization of people with differing opinions. Don't be afraid to do that because they're just going to make things better and make you see things that you're not able to see. And one word to these CIOs and CTOs and VPs that are doing these initiatives is just open it up, open up the discussion about some of these things, especially when it comes to AI especially when it comes to integrating multiple data sources together because you're starting to bring data in and do you really understand what you're bringing in? Do you really understand, like, why do we need that data? Is that data really important to the goal of what we're trying to achieve here? What is the risk of bringing that data in? How do we keep that data protected, right? Because we, as companies, have so much sensitive data. When I think about myself as a CEO of Winward, I have an obligation to protect my customers, right? So we spend a lot of money on cybersecurity and protections and things like that. But I also have an obligation to my employees because I collect a lot of information about them. I know how much they make. I know where they live. I know how many kids they have. I know their medical. I know, I know all this stuff about them. And I have an obligation to protect that data. And I believe that obligation is a higher calling than trying to drive efficiency inside of my organization. What's a windward response? If you're hit with a subpoena on something you would otherwise consider private, you don't necessarily have to answer. But that's one of those considerations. I can't give what I don't have if I've collected everyone's fingerprints and I get hit with a subpoena for all of them because they're looking for the needle in the haystack. What do I do? Do I fight on behalf of my employees? Do I play good corporate legal citizen and turn it over? All right. Do I want Amazon to have my palm print just so I can not whip out my credit card and whatever the store location is? The answer is no, because I don't know where my palm print could wind up in the wrong circumstance. As a business owner, the guys who started were ladies or whoever who started ImageNet, who now is somewhere between two and three billion images they have just scraped off the general internet. They didn't have that conversation. Somebody was smart enough to say, well, those might be valuable. Let's just go grab them. And they did. And now that they have them, they're being used by, you know, police departments, et cetera, who have to get a warrant to take our picture and use it. But they 
don't have to get a warrant to buy our picture from a third party. They just neatly step around the legal requirement for a court order or a warrant from a judge. Do we want to have that information as you said? And do we need it? Does your company or mine need a fingerprint on file? No and no. And if the CEO of White Castle heard that idea, would he or she have been better served to have you know, like an all-hands corporate meeting and say, okay, everybody, here's the positive. Give us your fingerprint. You get into work faster. Here's the negative. We're not sure. But if they do that and get global buy-in, are they being sued today? Who knows? Yeah, Scott, I think, I think what's interesting, like you just brought up a really interesting point, and that is, what are the questions we should be asking ourselves? So the first recommendation is bring this initiative into light, bring more people into the conversation with possibly dissenting views on what it should be, and ask yourself some questions. What happens if we get a subpoena? What happens if somebody asks us to prove that we don't do X or don't do Y? And I think that creates conversation, and conversation will ultimately will create answers, and answers will eventually create your strategy going forward. So, Scott, this has been fascinating. I am really excited about you coming on this. And like I said, this is probably one of, the, one of the most interesting conversations I've had. So I appreciate you coming on. I'd love to have you on again in the future. So thank you very much. Thanks, Sean. This has been great. I appreciate your comment about how important this podcast was for you. I hope that it's as important for everyone because we all need to truly understand the positives and the negatives that are associated with artificial intelligence, with security, with biometrics, and how they all combine together before we just blindly start accepting everything that happens as natural truth or a fait accompli. So thank you again for having me. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening. For show notes and links related to everything discussed today, access to archive episodes, and to download the free guide, Nine Ways to Accelerate Your Service Reliability Strategy, head to winward.com. That's W-I-N-D-W-A-R-D.com. dot